We are in a journey through the Old Testament book of Esther, and uh, we continue that journey uh, this morning. Um, If you've missed any part of this series, this conversation, I'd encourage you to head to our website or our YouTube channel or Facebook or Zanga, uh, wherever, and uh, man, catch up with us. Um, But let me give you a quick summary, and this is going to be a fire hydrant version, so I hope you can handle it. There'll be quite a little bit to try and remember. So the book of Esther is set about 500 years before Jesus Christ uh, sets foot on the scene, and it's set in the capital city of the Persian Empire, a city named Susa, modern-day Iran, and uh, the Persian Empire was the most powerful empire on the planet, the superpower at the time, and seated on the throne of Persia was a man named Xerxes. At some point early in this story, Xerxes has a dispute with his wife, the queen Vashti. She embarrasses him in front of the world. He becomes so furious that he banishes her from um, his presence, and he strips her of her crown. Breaks up with his wife, divorces his wife. Uh, A little bit later on, he starts to experience some remorse and some loneliness. He misses his wife and he feels lonely, whatever. And so his whole team decides, hey, why don't we find your replacement queen? Matter of fact, we'll make it a contest. And by contest, we mean, king, would you issue a decree that forces beautiful virgins from around the world to be brought to your palace to audition for the role of queen. And whoever proves to be most beautiful to you or most pleasing behind closed doors, that person will become the queen. Enter Esther. Esther is an orphaned Jewish girl living in the Persian Empire, in the city of Susa, at that particular time, the most beautiful woman in the world. The moment the King Xerxes lays eyes on Esther, he must have her. He proposes to her, he makes her the queen, makes her his wife. Esther, at an early age, lost her parents, both of them. And so she ended up being raised by an older cousin, uh, a man by the name of Mordecai, right? So Xerxes... Esther, Esther's adopted dad, Mordecai. Uh, Mordecai himself is a Jew, who not just a Jew, he belongs to the elite tribe of Benjamin. More than that, this Mordecai character is the great, 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 great grandson of the first king of Israel, the first king of the Jews, a man by the name of Saul. Last week, the story took an incredibly dark turn in chapter 3 as we were introduced to the villain, if you will, of the story. A man by the name of Haman the Agagite. Haman! This guy steps onto the scene and he belongs to the people known as the Amalekites. Hang on. The Amalekites were the first people on the planet to hate the Jews, to target and attack the Jews, to eliminate them. More than that, Haman is a great, great, great grandson of a man named Agag. Agag was the king of the Amalekites when they went against the Jews in a famous war that the Amalekites lost. Hang on. So, when the Jews beat the Amalekites, the two kings that were at war, one was a king named Saul. And the other was a king named Agag. Saul beat Agag and he took him captive and eventually he killed um, King Agag. These two nations did not like each other at all. Fast forward a couple of generations. Fast forward some generations. And here we are in the city of Susa, and we meet Haman, the great, 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 great grandson of this king who lost, and Mordecai, the great, 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 great grandson of the king Saul, who won. Anyway, when Haman is introduced to us, this dude has just received the highest possible promotion in Persia. He's been promoted to become the second most powerful man in the world. And one of the perks of being promoted to that role is that everyone who sees him has to bow in his presence. And so that's what happens when people see Haman the Agagite, this person who belonged to the tribe that hated the Jews, they would take a knee, they would bow. People cooperated. Well, everyone except Mordecai. For some undisclosed reason, Mordecai refuses to bow to 
Haman. When Haman finds this out, he is so furious that he vows to not only extinguish Mordecai, but every single Jew on the planet because of his beef with Mordecai. When we left the story last week, word is starting to spread. Haman has gone to the king and he's manipulated and convinced the king to sign an order that says everybody 11 months from now is obligated under royal decree to kill every Jew that they know and then to take all of their belongings. The story has taken an incredibly dark turn. The city of Susa starts to receive word about this mandate and they are just absolutely bewildered. And man, it struck me before we get to chapter 4 how much so many of us unfortunately are like Mordecai and Haman. We are in so many ways just like them because without even thinking about it, We've inherited and we are fighting our great, great, great grandparents' wars. Man, how that struck me. They hated the Amalekites and they taught their kids to hate the Amalekites. So they grew up in a home hating the Amalekites without thinking too much about it. And then they were taught to hate the Jews. And so they grew up in a, in a home where they hated the Jews. And generations and generations passed down until Haman and Mordecai all of a sudden are fighting their great great granddaddy's war. And they've never even had a conversation. And an entire group of millions of people on the verge of annihilation because of it. Man, this struck me. And it just raised the question in my own life and in yours. Like, are you still fighting your great-grandparents' wars? Without even thinking about it. They hated the Republicans. And so they taught their kids to hate the Republicans. And so they grew up in a home where the Republicans are just the evil. And they're trying to do this. And then that got passed down to us. And so then we hated the Democrats. And we were raised to hate the Democrats. Because their parents were raised to hate the Democrats. And before long, generations passed. And we're on the verge of this civil Just because we continued and perpetuated a beef that we inherited. And we've never even had a meaningful conversation with somebody on the other side of the aisle. They called black people lazy and they told their kids to call black people lazy as well. And they shared racist jokes in the home. But make sure you don't share these outside of the house because you get canceled out there. And then they taught it and it became okay in the home. And before long we had this perception and we had never actually had a close relationship with anybody belonging to that race. And then they told us that the white man was the devil and that cops were evil and we just inherited that. And before long we are now in this place of incredible tension and men they cannot be trusted do not trust a man and before long we were and even for me by the way simple things like my parents raised me and they taught me like you never talk to a stranger and then in the grocery store they'll be like why are you being so rude I'm like I don't know I'm confused like what are we supposed to do you're supposed to reach the lost and you're supposed okay I don't right Is there a category of people that you despise or maybe even just keep at a distance, but you've never had a meaningful conversation? If so, you might be fighting your great-grandparents' war. And I just came to suggest drop the war. Just because they handed down a war does not mean you have to carry it. Drop it. Start a new legacy. Leave a better inheritance. Just because your family doesn't speak to that side of the family doesn't mean you have to perpetuate that to the next generation. Maybe have a conversation with your uncle and hear his side of the story that nobody ever shared with you. You may be surprised. Maybe have a conversation. Talk to a few people who use that hashtag instead of just inheriting and inheriting what other people have. Said, And you may be surprised. Maybe they've heard stories about you that will shock you. Wait, we do what? That's not true. 
I'm sorry, our great-grandparents said, all of you do this. And then my parents told us, all of you do this, which is part of the reason why, and we've never even had a conversation. I love, by the way, that Jesus stepped onto the scene and, and came all the way to earth to do this. Hey, we've been at war for generations and for generations and generations long enough. And I know your great-grandparents told their kids and their kids told their kids that this is what I'm like. But I say to you, Here's the reality. And he came close and started a new legacy of love. I'm just wondering. Anyway, if you have a copy of the Bible, we're in Esther chapter 4. We're going to look at about half of the chapter here today. And as always, I tried to move on. Lord knows, I tried. Esther chapter 4, starting at verse 1. And man, this has been such a a challenging section of scripture for a variety of reasons. And this is just true confessions uh, from me to you. Uh, I don't mind studying the scriptures and having the spirit reveal things to think about. In fact, I want to be more curious and I want to ask more questions and I want to think about it. I don't mind when the Holy Spirit reveals from the scriptures things that I need to do and work on and go out and make a difference. But man, when the spirit starts to reveal things that I need to feel, no, I I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I want to know what God wants to do through me. But I'm not always keen to know what God wants to do in me. So I struggled with this section of scripture as the Lord continued to speak through it. Man will see how you do. Esther chapter 4 verse 1. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes and he went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. So, man, Esther chapter 4 opens with this heart-wrenching scene. Mordecai finds out 11 months from now, millions of people around the world like him are going to be slaughtered simply because they are Jewish. A royal edict has gone out ordering everybody to participate in the purge of the Jews. When Mordecai hears this, as you can imagine, that is more than his heart can handle. And he breaks. And in doing so, he does what was so customary in the cultural context of the Jewish people. When something unbearably painful happened, Mordecai mourns. He mourns. And mourning is simply expressing physically what he was experiencing emotionally that's what mourning is is when something absolutely devastating happens you feel something emotionally and then you express it physically or outwardly and so what Mordecai does is he rips his clothes almost as a symbol of what he felt was happening to his heart And in their place, he puts on this scratchy potato sack type of um, outfit. And then he smears ashes all over his body. Almost as his way of saying, I want to look the way I feel. If I'm not feeling pretty, then I don't want to come across all pretty for y'all. If I'm not feeling put together, then I don't want to come out of the house looking all put together. Then he walks the city streets crying at the top of his voice. It's a word that describes this cry of utter 
horror as he walks back and forth through the city. He's a hot mess making a scene in the streets. And as you can imagine, there's this international domino effect of mourning that happens as the news reaches the different provinces. Verse number three says, in every province to which the edict and the order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth, and ashes. As moms told their kids, look around you. They may be your friends and they may be your neighbors now, but 11 months from now, they are ordered to become your executioners. Why, mom? Right? Like, what for? Because you made the mistake of being born a Jew and someone decided that that makes you dangerous and you've got to go. So no surprise as this reality starts to set in. Jews around the world join Mordecai in this uncoordinated chorus of wailing. They mourn. They mourn the injustice. They they mourn, you know, being targeted for elimination. They, they, They mourn this abuse of power. They mourn the inevitable loss of Life. They mourn the unwarranted hate. They mourn this racism. They mourn the pain and the brokenness of this situation. They mourn all around the world. And I'm telling you, as much as I wanted to just move past that, I could not help but hear Jesus saying to his church, just mourn. Just mourn. My people have become so good and so quick at getting angry when things are wrong and broken and there's injustice in the world. My people have become so good at getting angry that they've lost their ability to feel the anguish over the broken things in the world around them. Just Mourn. Just mourn with me. Before you rush off to try to fix the broken things in your community, would you let the broken things break you a little bit? And just mourn. Express what you might begin to experience on account of The brokenness. Before you rush off to start pointing the finger at the person who's responsible for this wrong thing. Just mourn the wrong that's been done. Before you rush off to to fight against injustice, which my people love to do. Will you let the injustice just affect you? Just Mourn, experience the wrong in your world and let it out, express it and ultimately express it to me. This is the stuff I don't like, man. I just want to move Lord to action. Would you please just tell us what we need to do? And the spirit of God is saying, I want my church to feel again, just mourn with me. It's interesting that when Nehemiah, um, in another book of the Old Testament, found out that the walls in his home city of Jerusalem were broken, before he goes to do anything else, he just sits and mourns. This is true for Mordecai. Before Mordecai starts any strategizing about what needs to be done, he just expressed, he lets this experience wash over him and he expresses it. I read this and I'm like, Mordecai, this is weird, man. You're making a scene. Uh, How about we get some things done? I believe Jesus would say to his church, it's time to mourn 
again. In fact, I don't have to guess that Jesus would say that to his church because in my Bible, he actually says it. Matthew chapter 5 verse 4. This is how it works in my kingdom. He says, blessed are those who mourn. For they will experience my comfort. And man, even as we sit in this service, our community is going through some brutal things right now. Our nation is experiencing some absolutely awful things right now. And how powerful it would be for the church of Jesus to be unleashed as a movement of the comforted. Carrying comfort, not that we've experienced us, not just that we've experienced ourselves, but enough to show up into places carrying the comfort that we ourselves have experienced on account of the fact that we've mourned. Because Jesus says, I will comfort those who intentionally choose to mourn. I just think it'll be so beautiful to to move out into our community, into the broken spaces, carrying something that we've experienced because we've expressed our anguish to Jesus himself. But that comfort, that blessing is only available to the person who's willing to mourn. And I'm that person who's like, oh no, I want to act I want to do something. I want to move on. Matter of fact, um, I fear that in the church we believe no blessed are the strong. Yeah. Blessed are the put together. Those who show up to church dressed really nicely and always wearing a smile because they're the people who figured it out and they've reached an echelon of maturity. Blessed are the unaffected, those who've learned how to suck it up and how to keep it all in. And I grew up in a home in which, listen, you want to be a manly man. We don't pause and we cry over it. We don't cry. We, we, we move on. We figure things out. We suck it up. And here comes Jesus saying, no, in my kingdom, my people do not experience broken things in their world and just move on. No, you are blessed as you mourn. I'm just asking you, are you a mourner? I think the church has forgotten how to mourn. And Jesus is calling us back to it. He's looking for mourners. Just mourn with me. Right? 19 kids locked in a classroom only to meet that kind of fate. Come on, mourn with me. There are moms who will never hold their kids again. Let's not just move on from that. Mourn with me. Before you start pointing that the finger or posting your position, mourn with me. Before you rush to protect your rights, would you just mourn the injustice and the brutality and the brokenness of this? Folks, a neighboring church is going through hell right now as we sit here. Before you start trying to figure out ways to distance yourself from the church and before you start figuring out ways to defend Jesus' reputation like he needs that from you. Just mourn. There are families whose lives have been upended and they will never be the same again. And I believe Jesus is calling his church back to the places where we, we, we mourn those kinds of 
things. Man, I have so much growing. I have so much repenting to do in this area. Because something messed up happens in our country. And immediately I start to think about all of the people who are going to say dumb stuff. And I'm already preparing to fight against those people who are going to show up. And Jesus is saying, come on, man. Open your arms. Stop fighting. Just mourn. I want to heal my church in ways that unleashes them onto the world with healing. And I'm like, no, I want to fight. And post and fix. And he's looking for mourners. I wonder what he might be inviting you to go back and mourn. I wonder what holy comfort you've left on the table because you just wanted to move on and it was too painful. You didn't want to deal with it. Or you chose anger instead of feeling anguish over what was broken and you've moved on. And God is like, come back. I have so much healing for you. I have so much comfort for you. I have so much blessing for you. Come back to the place of mourning. Come back and mourn that relationship that ended way too soon. Come back and and mourn that loss of a job. Come back and mourn that prognosis that you received. Come back and mourn that abandonment. Come back and mourn that injustice. You've been talking about it in so many ways, trying to fight and fix. Just mourn. And I'm telling you, for some of us, you came to church to get permission from heaven. It is time to go back and cry about what your parents said to you. I'm going to meet you there. It is time for for some of us to go back and just punch, preferably a bag, keep it legal. But for some of us, I'm telling you, there's stuff that I believe Jesus wants us to, to mourn. To learn to mourn again. And for some of us it's expressing honestly for the very first time when somebody asks you how are you doing. Maybe for you it's oh, oh, okay. I've been putting on. I've been pretting it up. But I'm not going to pretty up for you if I'm feeling messy with it. And for some of you it's just that you're going to start. I'm just going to tell you honestly how I'm doing. I'm just going to let it out. For some of you, I'm going to set up some counseling because I need to get into a safe place where I can just start to let it out. Ultimately, to let it out to him. For some of you, you need to just go one-on-one with the Lord and tell him, I am so angry at you. Where were you when this happened? I'm just going to move straight to you. You failed me. I feel like you missed me. Whatever it is, bring it on. He is big enough to handle your greatest grief. He has more comfort for you than you can possibly imagine. Only let us not forget how to mourn. He wants to meet us there. And it's that kind of church that I believe the world needs right now. Healed, comfort. It doesn't mean it goes away. But we know where healing comes from. And we continue to mourn. Word gets back to Esther the queen. Um, Esther, hey, that one dude that you seem to know, Mordecai, is walking the streets, wailing inconsolably, dressed in rags and covered in ashes. Verse 4, when Esther's eunuch and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on, Instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Man, I'm like, Lord, again, right? Feelings, feelings. Like, although I love these lost emotional arts, even though I struggle with them, I believe Jesus is inviting his church back to them. When Esther hears that Mordecai is hurting her, immediate response is to hurt with him and to hurt for him. That's empathy. Empathy is the art of mourning someone else's pain. This is so powerful to me. Because it's so often so absent in me. It's the ability to see people's 
brokenness, even through their behavior. Because Mordecai is walking around town making a scene. And when Esther hears about this, her first response is empathy. I'm like, Lord, please change me. This is not me. If somebody called me on the phone and said to me, hey, your daughter, one of your daughters is at her school and she's walking up and down the hallway screaming at the top of her lungs, And apparently she's dispensed with her shoes and she's just wearing socks right now. Just walking around the hallway, um, making noise, making a scene. My first response would not be distress. My first response would be embarrassment. My first response would not be to for a second think about, I wonder what's breaking in her. My first response would be, you are breaking my reputation. You better stop that behavior. Because the truth of the matter is I've become way too obsessed with what someone is doing. Whereas Jesus tends to be so much more concerned with why. Someone is doing what they're doing. I love this about Esther. You know your, 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 your dad, even though they didn't know that, he's just making a scene. And her immediate response is, if he's walking around dressed like that, something must be wrong. And she feels distress for him. That's empathy. So, so powerful. Because, man, if I don't like or understand how you're behaving in the streets, I don't care what might be breaking in your soul. And here's the reality. If God could pull the veil back and help all of us understand, which we do, why that dude is walking around the street making noise and making a scene, all of us would experience a little bit of empathy. It would be like, that makes sense. And I suspect that's true with people in our world. When they're hurting and they do some dumb stuff, if he would allow us to see some of the whys behind empathy, 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 empathy. May you grow us, Lord, in our empathy. So anyway, Esther hears her dad is hurting, so she, uh, <laughs> she sends him some clothes to help cheer him up and make things better. Long story short, Mordecai gets this care package from the palace. And he says, um, no thanks, return to sender. Like, man, that is such a great reminder to the church. Especially a church like ours that feels so called to step into the pain and the brokenness um, of helping hurting people. This was so striking to me. Just another reminder. Hey, church, stop guessing. Start asking. Be more curious. Ask more questions. When you become aware that something is broken and someone might be hurting or mourning or falling apart or experiencing injustice. Come on, Esther. Don't try and guess what they need. Ask them. Ask them. If you guess what somebody needs when they're in the, the, the darkest day of their life, you may be right, but you certainly be arrogant. It's so presumptuous for me to assume I know what someone needs when they're going through the valley. So Esther, she hears um, that Mordecai was crying and, and dressed like a bum. So she sent him some Kleenex and some Louis Vuitton clothes. And everyone in the harem would have probably said, oh, he's going to look so nice in those. Um, but when the package gets to Mordecai, he thinks, ah, the last thing I want right now is to look good. You've totally missed me on this one, Esther. You think I'm crying about clothes? You think I'm having a wardrobe crisis? And unfortunately, that's so often me and my relationships. That's so often our church and the way we enter into the brokenness of this 
world. With the best of intentions, we guess why the people in our world are hurting and what they need. And so we show up with packages that are designed to make that behavior stop. The most obvious thing that we see. And again, I can imagine Jesus whispering to his church, oh, no, 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 no. Just ask them. Ask them. Before you show up with solutions, show up with questions. That's why I think empathy is so powerful. It allows me to ask questions um, even when I don't like the way somebody may be expressing themselves. It allows me to ask questions even when I think I might understand. This is such a great lesson. When you become aware, and we are in a season right now, our world is hurting. Our church is hurting. There are churches, and one in particular, even in our own community, that is hurting deeply. This is such a reminder for us to lead with questions and ask what and ask why. This is such a reminder to ask the grieving mom. Maybe she doesn't want flowers. Maybe she just wants to talk about her baby. Ask questions when we step into these broken spaces. Maybe to ask someone you know from Ukraine. You may be surprised that what's hurting the most isn't what you think is hurting the most. Isn't what's being reported about what's hurting them most. It might surprise you. Ask the person who's experienced the deepest of abuses. And if they're willing to talk, ask them, what would you like me to know? And you may be, I just want somebody to hear me without judgment for the very first time. Ask, ask your kid, what are you feeling about what happened in Texas? They might not know, they might not be able to give, you know, the most clear, profound of answers, but give them a chance to tell you why. Ask the teachers in our community, how are you feeling? Uh, How are you stepping into this space? I don't want to speak for you or sue for you and then step in. This is another great reminder that even as we step into brokenness, to be more curious, ask more questions, let people talk. To us. Ask the people at New Life Church to tell you what's it like. How are you feeling? I've seen that you're being targeted online by association. What's that like? Talk to me. Um, I'm not sure why we don't do this well. I, I do. I think we feel intimidated. Like I'm not going to know what to say. Um, so we stay away. Or we feel like if I'm going to step in, I want to feel like I stepped in competently. I want to feel competent. I want to step in like we know what we're doing and we're coming in to help with the situation. We know exactly what's happening. And I'm like, what? Even the most brilliant professional practitioners lead with questions. But plumber comes to my house and they just start like, hmm, seen this one before. Even the most brilliant practitioners will say, I can see that there's a cut on your forehead. Can I ask you a few questions? What happened? Are you allergic to anything? Do you know where you are? Do you know what year it is? Do you know your name? Right? They'll ask a few questions to get because they understand everybody breaks differently. Before I just start suturing. I want to understand. And what strikes me amazingly is Jesus, the all-knowing one, would ask questions. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus walks up to this blind man and asks him the question, what do you want me to do for you? Like, what? Aren't you all-knowing and can't you see? That I want to see. And yet he asks the question to these two blind guys. He asks the question to the paralyzed man at the pool who can't get in. What would you like me to do for you? Even Jesus asks questions. 
And I think there's something so powerful as simple as this sounds about stepping into people's pain and leading with questions. Um, Esther gets this uh, returned package. And um, I love what she does next. This is so cool. Uh, She doesn't say, oh, well, I tried. Verse 5, then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. (laughs) Yes, Lord, there is still hope. It is never too late to become better at empathy and listening. I love this. All you need is a little dose of humility that acknowledges maybe I didn't understand it the way I thought I understood it. And maybe I didn't actually know what this person needed. It just takes a little humility. Maybe I was wrong this whole time. Help me understand. I love this. Simple verse, simple request. Go find out what happened and why. If the church is going to get into the world and be the hands and feet of Jesus, this should be so much of our posture. Help us understand what happened and why. It's never too late to maybe ask a white person, what does all of this talk about racism do for you? Instead of just assuming, well, I mean, I mean, you have all the privilege, so there's no chance that you have any opportunity to experience a racial wound. So that, that, It's never too late to actually ask that question. Never too late to ask why you haven't talked to anyone about this until now. Never too late to ask. Instead of just starting to question and eliminate credibility. I love that Esther asks. She gets it wrong, but then she steps back in and she asks the question. Never too late To say, help me understand why you're protesting in the streets. Instead of saying, well, there are better ways to feel heard than to be loud. And I'm going to dismiss you. You're making a scene in the streets, Mordecai. Never too late to say, kids, I'm so sorry. I just assumed I knew. This is what I do as a dad. I just assume I know. And one of my rationale, well, I was a kid once. Right? And then we'll even say stuff like that to, to, to the kids. We'll be like, well, um, <laughs> it, is, it is unbelievable how this is lacking in, um, in us. Um, we'll say stuff like, when I was your age, uh, we didn't have any of this, you know, pansy, mamsy, like mental health stuff going on. We were tough. Well, A, first of all, no, you were not. Second of all, Second of all, our kids would look at us and be like, yeah, but you didn't have death and you didn't have all of these wars and you didn't have some of the most brutal partisan ugliness at your disposal 24 hours a day. You didn't have bullying coming to your house. If somebody wanted to bully you, they had to wait till school and they had to meet you somewhere. Now we are surrounded by all of this ugliness constantly it's different for us first of all boomer so maybe it's never too late to say to my kids help me understand what life is like in your world and why you hurt differently and why your brokenness looks different instead of like "Mm, clearly you guys just need a little this and here's a package of that take some kleenex and you guys should be fine Never too late to say, honey, I'm sorry. I've been walking around acting like Mel Gibson. Like, I know what women want. Like, no, ask. Help me understand your hurt. Help me understand what you need. I love that Esther doesn't get defensive, right? Which is, I think, what we often do too. I tried, and you guys didn't work. I tried. I mean, what more do these people want from us? Maybe they want to be heard. God bless you for trying, but maybe you sent them Kleenex when they just received an annihilation notice. Verse number six. So Hathak went to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of 
the Jews. Because most people are willing to talk when we truly become willing to ask and listen without assumption. There is so much hurt right now. And what has been lost in the church and lost in our country is the ability to ask questions and listen without starting with a conclusion. Help me to understand the humility of acknowledging I may not get it. And even if you and I disagree, your behavior, I would never do what you do. I would never put on sackcloth and ashes, ever. But help me understand why you would. He talks to her. He didn't offer, but he answered when he was asked. Our people have been targeted for extinction. And Haman offered $3.5 billion to make sure that it happened. So... No thanks, Esther. I'm good on clothes. That's not what's going on here. Ah, verse 8. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for the annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show Esther and explain it to her. I want you to understand. And then he told him, the eunuch, to instruct Esther to go into the king's presence and beg for mercy and plead with him for her People, Man, when we pick up next week, Mordecai is going to threaten his daughter. Things are going to get tense as the story starts to move towards resolution. But for today, for today, as much as I wanted to move on, I just feel like we need to pause and ask the question, Spirit of God, what is it you want me to see? What do you want to reveal to me? What is it that you may be calling me to mourn? I have moved on and you are calling me to mourn. There are still broken places that you want to heal. There is still comfort you want to offer. I just wonder if the Spirit won't speak to some of us if we are open to asking that question. And if you've never, you know, heard from the Spirit of God, be prepared. Things could get beautiful for you. But we want to pause before we move on and start thinking about action and thinking about lunch and thinking about what's next. I just wonder if we don't do the very thing we just saw and ask the Spirit of God, would you show me, is there something you want me to go back and mourn? Something that that my dad did? Something that's broken in the world around? What if I moved on from that you want me to mourn so that you can heal that place? And for some of us, maybe it's a spirit wanting to say, there is a war that you've continued to fight that is from generations before you. I want to break the chain of addiction. I want to break this beef that's been happening with your family and this family. I want to bring about a new legacy of love that you can leave for the generations after you. But it is amazing how these moments are quick and we let them go and we move on and we miss what the Spirit of God might want to miraculously do in us. And I'm saying, let's not do that. Let's ask the question, Spirit of God, what do you want to do in me? Is this someone that I need to go and ask? I've been aware that they've been hurting and I've not been sure quite what to do. Is this somebody you want to Lead me to go and ask, help me understand what you're going through and what I can possibly do. I'm telling you, there is healing in the room. I'm telling you, there is freedom in the room. I'm telling you, I believe the Spirit of God wants to heal his church and then send us out to be agents and extensions of that healing in the world around us. But healing is not going to happen because we've gotten better at sending care packages. Healing is going to happen because we are being healed by the healer and going back to him for more healing and going back to him for more healing and we become these agents agencies, conduits of healing in the world around us. We can't just move on from this if we want to see our city healed. We can't just move on from this if we want to see our nation healed. So I'm just asking, let's take 60 seconds and just ask the Spirit of God, would you reveal to me what it is you want me to see?
What do you want me to see? In fact, I'm going to invite you to pray that out loud. If you're willing, just what do you want me to say? Once you pray that with me, what do you want me to see? Let's just ask him right now and we'll be silent for a few moments. And Spirit of God, speak to your people. Spirit of God, thank you that you are present in this place. Thank you that you long to speak to your people. So I pray even now that as you're surfacing things in our hearts, that you would start to bring healing, that you would start to bring comfort, comfort for that prognosis, comfort for that abandonment, healing for that Abuse. I pray that you would start to bring freedom, freedom from that, the chain of addiction, feeling freedom from the, the anger that has been destructive for generations. I pray that you would break those chains and start a new legacy of love in the name of Jesus. Lord, we pray for the places we've moved on and not mourned, that even as we are mourning that you would bring comfort. We pray, Lord, for the, the, the families still reeling in Texas. We pray for the families still reeling in Buffalo. We pray for the church down the road that is reeling and writhing in pain right now, that you would bring healing. And we pray that you would make us humble agents of your healing in these spaces as much as you desire. Have your way in us. Do your work in us so that you can more beautifully do your work through us. And so even now I pray for the courage of the people in this room and the people watching online to do whatever you're calling us to do, to have that conversation, to write down that expression of mourning, to make contact with a therapist, whatever needs to happen, heal your people, have your way. You have great things for us to do. In Jesus' great and mighty name, amen.